So this evening I'd like to talk about dimensions of self. So the Buddha taught that all conditioned phenomena are dukkha, innately unable to provide lasting happiness or freedom. He taught that all conditioned phenomena are anicca, that the ripples of ever-present change and instability run through all events, through all lives, through all experience. And he taught that all conditioned phenomena are anatta, empty of self, contain no eternal center, no independent self-existence. This teaching of anatta, non-self, and the teaching of shunya or shunyata, often translated as emptiness, is probably one of the most radical of all of the Buddha's teaching. And he lived in a time and in a culture where all around him people were engaging in heroic and endless quests to secure a present and a future self. And that quest that that was often sought for through performing rituals, through um, sacrifice, through accumulation of merit, through identity or position in society. And the invitation to investigate the whole notion of a solid self, central to all experience and present in all things, was of course at the time of the Buddha not only radical, it was also countercultural, because it was very much a challenging of a personal view, but also challenging of a worldview. Now, we, in our time, I think, and in our cultures, we, we engage in not-so-dissimilar pursuits. We rely upon possessions, upon everything we've accumulated. For a sense of self, we seek a sense of self from our identities, through our roles, through our relationships, We try to secure a present, hopefully unassailable self. And if we look deeply in our hearts, we may indeed find ourselves hoping and craving for a continuation of me. I saw someone wearing a T-shirt not long ago, and the the slogan on the T-shirt said, Actually, it is all about me. (laughs) And I thought, how wonderful that someone's got at least the guts to say it, you know? (laughs) So you think, what is our emotional response to the proposal that the sense of I, the solidity of me, may be little more than a view? Maybe little more than an illusion, like a mirage in a desert or the illusion that because we can see the sun rise in one direction and set in the other direction, it does look like the sun is circling us, doesn't it? And we're the center of it all, even though we know it's not so. What is our response to the possibility that it's actually not all about me? Body, emotions, perceptions, intentions, mind, all experienced moment to moment, that they're not actually mine, that they don't belong to me, and that they're not who we are. Now, when we hear that proposal, do we find ourselves feeling a little bit dismissive? Do we, do we hear a kind of small voice inwardly saying, of course I am. 
and I think, therefore, I am. My life, my story, all of this is who I am. Do we find ourselves disturbed by the possibility that there's no centralized me? Do we find ourselves wondering what would get us out of bed in the morning? What would give meaning to our life? We say, well, look at everything I've done. Look at everything I wish to do. Do we find ourselves feeling a little bit agitated by the prospect that it's not all about me? Do we find ourselves thinking, well, what about all my hopes and my dreams and my plans and, you know, my individuality? It's a big thing in our world, isn't it? You know, we get praised for being a personality. Do we find our actual selves hearing that there's a little bit of good news? That we're kind of tired of ourselves. You may have been sitting with yourself now for quite a few days, you know. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself just a little tired of it all? <laughs> oh, that story again, you know. That, that particular cycle again, you know. That particular clinging again. It's so exhausting being a me. Now, there's a curious kind of, you know, I think a sort of experiential paradox or felt sense that we go through that, you know, although we can maybe a little bit entertain the idea of non-self, it really feels like a felt experience, doesn't it? And it's one of the primary reasons, I think, why the the notion or the possibility of non-self feels so impalatable or implausible because it's kind of like you, you do you find yourself you wake up in the morning and yourself is waiting for you you know kind of like a familiar pair of slippers by the side of your bed you know you just kind of slip into them and they kind of take you through the day and uh, now the one thing is very important to be very clear about in this discussion is that the Buddha did not teach no self. Please, that's such a a, a terrible idea. (laughs) It's not what he taught. I mean, the teaching of no self would make us dysfunctional human beings. You know, and as far as we can tell from the life of the Buddha, he, his monks, nuns, were very, very functional human beings. You know, they moved through the world with tremendous integrity, with dignity. They were relational beings. You know, they were not kind of absent, which is what no self implies. It's very good that, you know, we, we actually have that functionality of knowing whose mail to open and, uh, you know... <laughs> who our partners are and, you know, where to go to work and all that stuff. But the Buddha did teach non-self. No thing has an independent self-existence. And he very much taught the ways to bring clinging to views of self to an end. And the Buddha described this view of self as being something of an illness, an irritation, a vexation, an affliction, a delusion, a fabrication, and I think he had more extreme words, and actually proposed that the majority of the difficulties that we experience in this life in forms of fear, struggle, blame, shame, anxiety, craving, aversion, that most of our emotional and psychological suffering really stems from the reification of a view of self. The centralization of views of self both inwardly and outwardly, and that the very profound release of these views, the end of clinging to these views of self, is what opens the door to very profound peace and freedom that brings all conflict and struggle and fear to an end. It is the ending of these views of self that opens the door to an unshakable kindness, compassion, equanimity, and a life that is imbued with joy. 
And this speaks about it very much as a process of unbinding the heart. Awakening, unbinding the heart from views. I'd like to read you a verse from one of the teachings. It says, Through many lives I sought in vain the builder of this house of pain. Now, builder, thee I plainly see. This is the last abode for me. The gables, yoke, and rafters broken. My heart has peace. Now, we would also just want to uh, just acknowledge that this understanding of non-self is not particularly a Buddhist view. It is also, of course, borne out in all, ki- in all scientific disciplines. And I'll read you just one piece from a neuropsychiatrist that I very much like his writing. It says, The illusion is irresistible. Behind every face there is a self. We see the signal of consciousness in a gleaming eye and imagine some ethereal space behind, beneath the vault of the skull, lit by shifting patterns of feelings and thoughts, charged with, an, an, with intention, an essence. But what do we find in that space behind the face when we look? The brute fact is that there is nothing but material substance. Flesh and blood and bone and brain, I know I've seen. It goes on to say, you might think that the self is divided in in such circumstances, but this would be to swallow the illusion of unity, to imagine in the first place that there is some whole thing to be fractionated. There isn't. From a neuroscience perspective, we are all divided and discontinuous. The mental processes underlying our sense of self, feelings, thoughts, emotions, are scattered through different area zones of the brain. There is no special point of convergence, no cockpit of the soul, no soul pilot. They come together in a work of fiction. A human being is a storytelling machine. The self is a story. This is not to say that our lives are fictions. Unlike Robinson Crusoe or Emma Bovary, we are embedded in the universe with physical and moral dimensions where every thought and action splinters into a million consequences. Who tells the story of self? That's like asking who thunders the thunder or who rains the rain. It's not so much a question of us telling the story as the story telling us. There is a tendency on retreats, I think it's a very strange tendency personally, but there's a tendency on retreats to almost reserve the talk on non-self for the last evening. You know, as if this is such a terribly complex teaching that we have to prepare, you know. And, you know, there's perhaps some truth in this. For us to undertake any meaningful investigation does, as we've probably already noticed, require some depth of calm, some mindfulness, some curiosity, some stillness. And words like anatta or non-self or emptiness or voidness, they sound like very big and like very weighty words. But it's also important that the Buddha, to acknowledge the Buddha didn't reserve these teachings for his graduate students. Through the eyes of the Buddha, through the eyes he assumed of most practitioners, this is obvious. This is obvious if we look carefully. This is not some sort of esoteric, metaphysical teaching. It's just obvious. 
And it's an understanding that it's accessible to us all, and the freedom and the peace that is born of that understanding is also accessible to us all. And in truth, everything that we do in this practice and this path is actually dedicated to emptying the moment of self. To emptying all events and experiences of selfing, of reification, and and of clinging. So it's very important not to be intimidated by these words, not to be intimidated by these teachings. They are meant to be understood in our own experience. So if you, one way of framing our practice here is that we are engaging in a practice of emptying. And this is a practice that can only be cultivated in the moment. It's very present moment practice. It's not a conceptual understanding. It's very much an applied understanding. Personally, I very much like this, this metaphor of house building. I really like this metaphor of the ways, looking at the ways that we build our houses the ways that we seek to find ourselves seeking to establish an abode, an identity, a a center. Now, how how does that happen? How how do we build the house of self? You know, how do we build the abode of self? Look at this in your own experience. So, the primary mechanism that is used to build our constructions, to build our houses of self, is, of course, the mechanism of clinging and identification. This is what creates an abode. This is what creates an I am, that this is me, that this belongs to me. Now, this process of house building, I think, is something that's very traceable and very trackable in our own experience, if we look clearly. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's one I've encountered quite a bit. If you're traveling and you're a bit disoriented by traveling or by jet lag and you go to bed at night and you wake up in some unfamiliar bed and unfamiliar room, and I find myself completely fascinated by these moments because you wake up and I I don't know where I am. It's as simple, I just don't know where I am. I haven't got a clue. You know? And it, it, it's, it's very easy, it's very interesting to see that there's this kind of suspension of familiarity, this suspension of, of, of certainty and, and a suspension of, of a view of self. And then you, you can kind of feel like perception starts to kick in, you know, and you might recognize the hotel furniture, you know, or the color of the curtains or the sounds outside, and you can almost feel yourself arriving, you know. I'm arriving. I, I, I've got, I am someone. I've got something to do. I've got someone to go. But it almost feels like this world coming together, this world somehow being solidified in a certain kind of knowing. Now, all of that process, of course, can be quite neutral. Or it can be surrounded by clinging. It can also be something that we experience on a daily basis that is actually pretty tiresome. I'm going to read you a poem I came across by Naomi Shihab Nye. Some of you who aren't American won't know about the hokey pokey. (laughs) It's a children's game. It's called The Whole Self. When I think of the long history of the self on its journey to becoming the whole self, I get tired. It was the kind of trip you keep making over and over again. The bag you pack and repack so often, the shirts start folding themselves the minute you take them off. I kept detailed notes in a brown notebook. I could tell you when the arm joined, when it fell off again, when the heart found the... when the heart found the intended socket and settled down to pumping. I, should make, I could make a li- map of lost organs, a scrambled liver, the misplaced brain. Fin- then finally, finally, we met up with one another on a street corner in October, 
during the noon rush. I could tell you what I was wearing, how suddenly the face of the harried waitress made sense. I gave my order in a new voice, spoke the word vegetable like a precious code, had one relapse at a cowboy dance in Banders, Texas, under a sky so fat the full moon was sitting right on top of us. Give me back my villages, I moaned, the ability to touch and remove the hand without losing anything. Take me off this mountain where six counties are visible at once. I want to remember what it felt like loving by inches. You put the holes, put in the whole self. I'll keep with the toe. But no, it was like telling the eye not to blink. The self held on to its perimeters, committed forever, as if the reunion could not be reversed. Dance, the whole self was a current, a fragile cargo, a raft someone was paddling through the jungle, and I was there waving, and I would be there at the other end. Now, the Buddha speaks of self in three different ways. Actually, he speaks in many ways, but I just want to mention three ways. The first way that the Buddha speaks of self is in terms of Sakaya Ditti. This translates as personality view, the views we have of self. Another way that the Buddha speaks about self is in in the Pali word mana. This translates really as a very awkward, awkward phrase, but which I will explain later. But as the conceit of self, the ways that we position ourselves in relationship to the many selves that we encounter in the world. And another way that the Buddha speaks about is that through the understanding of shunya, or emptiness, or shunyata. And not only is it impossible to find an abiding independent self inwardly, but also not possible to find an abiding independent self anywhere. Now, for the purposes of tonight's contemplation, I would like to focus on these first two domains of self, Sakaya Ditti, personality view, and Mana, the conceit of self, and the way that these two actually interact. Because really the understanding of shunya or shunyata is, I think, pretty much a natural outcome of understanding personality view and Mana. Now, personality view is very, it's a very accessible investigation for us all, moment to moment. Whereas mana, or the conceit of self, I think for many people is kind of slightly more hidden, slightly more elusive. So let, let's start with personality view, the view of self. How you view yourself right now what view you hold of yourself in this moment. It's really a question of who are you just now? And just take a moment just to kind of think of that. You know, if someone was to come up to you and say, who are you? How would you answer? How would you describe yourself just now? I'm bored, I'm uncomfortable, I'm confused, I want to be out of here, I want to stay forever, I feel good, I feel bad, I'm suffering, I'm obsessing, I'm planning, I'm waiting. All of this is Sakaya Ditti. All of this is personality view. It may be a very intense personality view, or it might just be a quiet murmur sitting there in the background that we're hardly even aware of until we look more closely. Now, cast your mind back a few hours ago. Was your view of self at lunch exactly the same as it is now? Was your view of self in the first day of the retreat exactly the same as it is now? Was your view of self at breakfast precisely the same as the view you hold right now? Now, cast your mind back even further in life and remember all the views of self, all the houses you have so far inhabited in your life. 
the views of self you had as a child, as a teenager, in your first relationship, in your first breakup, your view of self as a student, as a parent. All the changing faces and identities of our life. And remember, too, at times, how substantial those houses actually felt. The ways that we might have said to ourselves, I'm going to feel forlorn forever. I'm going to be in love forever. I'm always going to be a hippie, a radical. (laughs) I'm always going to be anxious. I'm an anxious person, we say. I'm an anxious type. (laughs) I'm an active type. I'm a very positive person. I'm a very, very pessimistic person. (laughs) I'm an aversive type. And we're going to, we imagine this is how I am, who I am. Now, the degree of substantiality of our houses, we might notice, is entirely related to the intensity of the clinging and the identification of that moment. So sometimes we live in very flimsy shacks and sometimes we live in fortified castles. We can see when we live in sometimes these quite flimsy shacks, you know, the wind blows through, the sun shines through, the views of self that arise through reactions, through clinging to some event in the body, some mood, some perception, some feeling. And you can feel like the foundations of that house are not very strong. They're kind of weak. It's kind of like, you know, diluted clinging, we might call it, you know. Uh, you know it, it's not it's sort of a powerful surge. And there might even be sufficient mindfulness to know it. You know, and, and the view of self, and it, it's foundations of weeks, so it kind of changes and passes, doesn't it, through the day, you know, that often one view of self gets knocked off the shelf by another view of self arising or another area of clinging arising, you know, so I'm happy, I'm sad, you know, we feel those kind of shifts in a day. And sometimes when we, inha- we find ourselves inhabiting these fortified castles, you know, where the view of self is so historical, it is so repetitive, it is so familiar. And I know uh, I've used this example a couple of times because it's, it's, it was an event that struck me so strongly that I was in a store in England and I was queuing up to pay And I was coming from one direction. This young woman was coming from the other direction. And she was ahead of me. You know, she was getting there ahead of me. So I, you know, just did a normal thing. I was just saying, you know, you're first. And and she looked at me and she said, that's so amazing. And I I said, what's so amazing? She, She says, I'm the kind of person people always push in front of in lines. And it was just, you know, the sort of describing a kind of terminal condition, you know. (laughs) But just, you know, the belief of it. I'm the kind of person this happens to. Or I'm the kind of person who's always seen in this way by others. Or I'm the kind of person that I believe to be that kind of person. You know, it's kind of like I'm the kind of person who, the kid on the beach who always gets the sand kicked in their face, you know. And I will, you know, there's a lot attached to those views. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be successful. I'm never going to be aqu- adequate. We often cling most intensely, identify most intensely around what we can't accept what we're fearful of, or what we're aversive to. We often cling most intensely around what we perceive to be imperfect within ourselves. We also cling and identify quite intensely around what we crave, what we feel to be missing. Now, what we do see in our own experience is that if you repeat something often enough, it becomes a truth, doesn't it? 
And if you practice something long enough, you get better at it. So that means some of these historical views of self actually become patterns. They become not passing, not so ephemeral, not so changeable. They become belief systems. They become patterns, they become tendencies in themselves, almost a default position. The body is identified with as self, feeling is identified with as self, perception is identified with as self, volition and consciousness are identified with as self. I am the owner of all of this, and I am defined by what I own. I am defined by what I own. Now, in the Buddhist teaching, we don't actually speak about an entity of self. We speak about selfing. This is a process of selfing. And in Buddhist psychology, there, there is a continuum that craving and aversion intensifies into clinging and that clinging intensifies into becoming the house we inhabit, the I am. And I, I hope you can perhaps see that in your own experience, that craving and aversion intensifying, contracting, solidifying, in becomes clinging and actually whatever is clung to becomes the self-definition of the moment. Now, of course, with mindfulness, we learn to be more present, more awake in that process. And we learn to calm the craving and the aversion. And if we learn to calm the craving and aversion, we're learning to calm the clinging. And to calm the clinging is to calm the selfing. Now, these are very powerful tendencies, I'm sure we all recognize. But their power really relies upon the absence of mindfulness and investigation. And as we cultivate the mindfulness and the kindness and the curiosity available to us and possible for us, more and more we begin to see the transparency of personality view. I am self is not a noun. It's not an entity, it's not an essence, it's not stable, it's clearly not independent. It is a verb and a process. So the introduction of clinging into that process is what turns process into state. hope you can see that. Clinging turns process into state. It turns a verb of selfing into a noun of I am. Now, and it's not independent. The view of self is not independent. Now, the view of self is also shaped by the interaction with the other. Now, the other is the world of events, the events of our sense doors, the events of our bodies, our, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our touch, and of course the sense door of the mind. So the other is the sights, the sounds, the sensations, the, the smells, the tastes, and the thoughts. Now we are not only interacting with this world of the other, we are reacting. There is that which we welcome, that which we reject, that which we like, that which we dislike, that which we fear, that what we want, and that which we want. And if all of this is unseen, it magnifies into clinging and it shapes self-view. The view of self also shapes the view of the other through clinging. So the other gets invested with its own views according to the view of self. So we go through life saying, that's good, that's bad, that's terrible, that's lovely, that's wonderful. You know, you make me happy, you make me sad, you make me fearful, you know, you make me gratified. 
You hold the power, what I dislike in you, what I want in you, what I fear from you. Now, the language here is difficult, you know, and it's just the way the English language is structured because, you know, we say, I want, I, I dislike, I resist, as if, as if there's some kind of autonomous me doing all of this. In reality, sights, sounds, sensations are happening, they appear, they arise. This is a world of conditions we've never been able to control, even though we think we should be able to control it. It's an interface. Every moment is this interface of process and conditions, which is why it makes no sense to say, I do this. It's again coming back to the question of who rains the rain and who thunders the thunder. Now, this life, which is this interface of process and conditions, can be happening on the ground of confusion or on the ground of understanding. Now, that ground is in our hands. I do not cling. This is really, I hope you feel relieved by that. I do not cling. Clinging happens when the conditions within the mind and heart are conducive for clinging to happen. So clinging happens when craving and aversion are fed. I also do not let go. Also good news, as John mentioned the other day, I do not let go. Letting go happens when through the cultivation of the conditions of stillness, of calmness, investigation, of kindness, letting go happens. And I hope you have seen this in your own experience, that sometimes you can be sitting or walking, the mind is agitated, you know, the mind is busy, preoccupied, a difficult thought comes along, and it just sticks. You can be sitting or walking with completely different conditions present, the same thought of calmness, of spaciousness, of steadiness, exactly the same thought, exactly the same image can arise and it just passes right on through. The content hasn't changed. What has changed is the ground, the conditions in which that content is arising. Now, the Buddha put it, when no view of self is clung to, no view at all is clung to. And that this is the end of contractedness. This is the end of fear. It's the end of pursuit and avoidance. It is peace and liberation. Now, the second way in which the idea of self is reified is through what in Pali is mana, the conceit of self, or the positioning of myself in relationship to all things. If I see myself, this is what conceit of self means, if I see myself as being less than you, inferior to you, less able, less confident, less adequate, less lovable, less perfect than you, That's one position. I might see myself as actually being better than you, being superior to you, more perfect, more adequate, more lovable, more smart, more worthy or special than you. Or I might see, uh, look out at the world and look at myself and see this world peopled by foolish, imperfect people muddling their way through life and condemned to mediocrity. And we say, oh, we're all the same. Everyone's like this. Everyone does this, which is a load of nonsense, actually. They were all unable to change. Now, mana is quite a hidden view of self. And yet it has a powerful, powerful impact on every area of our lives, upon our speech, Our intentions, our actions, our choices, it might determine where you sit in the meditation room. 
you know, whether you become a back of the hall sitter, a front of the hall sitter, you know, whether you're looking to be visible or whether you're looking to be, you know, just lost in the crowd somewhere that nobody really notices. It might influence whether, you know, you're the last one to leave the hall in the evening, you know, I'm going to show them, you know, you know. Biggest sitter of all, you know. I, I mean, it just it just influences everything. It just influences everything, you know. How we view the world and 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 how we view other people. It might influence what we say and what we don't say. We don't want to appear foolish. It might influence what we aspire to, and what we resign ourselves to. Now, this story is an underlying belief system. We tell ourselves that story. And sometimes this underlying conceit or position of self is actually a story that's been told to us by other people. Hmm? You know, if you go through life, raised, told, you know, you're stupid, you're impossible, you can't do anything right. Well, it doesn't just pass right on through, does it? So sometimes it's a story told to us by, by others, but it shapes our sense of possibility and impulse possibility, and it certainly shapes how we engage with this path and with this practice and the possibility of profound awakening. How many people here actually truly feel that they can be liberated in exactly the same way as the Buddha? That was a question, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and, and, and yeah, a few. But how many, you know, if, if, if someone really, if you genuinely asked yourself that question, you know, is nirvana really realistic for me? Is it really possible for me? I mean, what is your response inwardly? It's a very important question. Hmm? Because it actually, then we ask, why are we practicing? And what are we practicing for? It's not a self-improvement program. Believe me, you don't get a better self out of this. <laughs> if anybody had that hope, you will get a more ethical way of being in, the li- in this life. You will learn to be kinder. You will learn to be more compassionate. But, and all of that is actually quite the opposite of a better self. That actually comes from seeing some of the transparency of our self-views and minimizing clinging. But it is a very important question to ask because, you know, that question asking us ourselves of that here also asks of, uh, asks of us what do we sense is possible in our lives, in our way of being in the world, in the quality of freedom we can find in our lives. Think of how it, how it impacts upon how we engage with the path. Do we sit and begin every sitting with every walking with really the intention to liberate the moment? Or do we begin every sitting you know, with a vague sense of we might occasionally run into a breath? <laughs> it truly it will influence the kind of efforts you make. It will influence your sense of vision, your sense of aspiration. Now, mana, and, and I'd like you to kind of naturalize the word because uh, conceit of self just sounds something different in English, doesn't it? We use conceit in a very different way, you know, of being kind of smog or something. So this is very, very different. You know, this is a way that we position ourselves based on an underlying ideology. Now, mana and personality view, in my understanding, are really interacting. They're really interfacing with one another. You know, because if I believe myself deep down, you know, without even it being articulated to be inferior to you, lesser than you, less perfect than you, then how is that actually going to influence the shaping of personality view in the moment? Well, first of all, we're very unlikely to be very generous with ourselves from that position of mana, you know, that I'm lesser inferior. Very like, we're very likely to be withholding of generosity and of compassion inwardly because we, we actually don't believe we deserve it because I'm lesser, I'm, I'm more inferior. 
we're probably, if, if we're prone to that particular form of mana being lesser, inferior, <clears throat> we're probably going to be very, very likely to seize upon imperfection, you know, and define and shape a personality view around the arising of what is perceived as imperfection. Um, you know, we'll be hyper alert, you know, fall asleep on the cushion, it's a major disaster, you know. Why would that be such a big deal? Because somehow clinging to that with judgment, identification, definition is really being fed by that underlying, underlying view. So it's really important to see how that is. We would probably, if we hold the position of being inferior, lesser, we'll probably have a highly refined inner critic, inner judge. Everybody but me can do this. Everything becomes a confirmation of incapacity. So the personality views that are being shaped in the moment through the underlying belief systems, shaping a personality view in the moment or a tendency to create a certain kind of personality view in the moment, that the more we we feed that tendency and that tendency is fed to, to create a personality view based primarily around imperfection, it's going to feed back to deepen that sense of mana, of being inferior or lesser. And the deepening of that sense of mana, of being inferior or lesser, is going to make us more prone to shape personality views through clinging to what we deem to be imperfect or a failure. You can see that. There's this kind of interplay. Now, if I actually have this underlying view, mana, of being somehow superior to you or better than you, I'm also kind of actually going to live in a kind of hyper-alert system because I'm going to highlight your faults. I'm going to highlight your imperfections because it's going to make me kind of confirm my sense of being better than you. I'm going to be looking out of this room and I'm going to look at all of you who just don't do it right. Break the rules. Look at them. I'd never do that. I'd never fall asleep in such a shameless way. (laughs) If we're held in that kind of view of superiority, we're probably likely to be pretty defensive. And I'm going to need to find the ways to constantly assert and reassure myself and form identities around, around that, about what I have, what I, what I own, what makes me stand out. And again, that's going to deepen that position of mana. And again, we're going to have a closed feedback loop. And if I subscribe to equality, conceit, um, yeah, I'm just cynical. I don't make much effort. I don't have much sense of aspiration. I don't have so much sense of of possibility. And I'm pretty cynical about anybody who says they do. So what we actually begin to see in the practice is that both personality view and mana, in my understanding, they are the great saboteurs of the Brahma-Viharas. They're the great saboteurs of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Because the Brahma-Viharas actually rest upon softening and dissolving this reification of both self and other. This is what the Brahma-Viharas rely upon. Softening that reification of self and other. Because it is that reification of self and other that breeds fear, breeds aversion, breeds separation, breeds conflict, breeds craving, and breeds the, um, the belief in insufficiency. So calming the selfing allows us sometimes to see these more, more elusive, deeper inner beliefs and conceits around that we hold that position us in the world, allows us actually to befriend, to have a kindness as the foundation of all of our moments. It is that softening of selfing that allows joy and unshakable equanimity to begin to arise. So we say, well, what really is the work of this path? It's not about annihilating the self. It's not shouting at ourselves to let go. 
but cultivating moment to moment the spacious awareness, the mindfulness, and the inner kindness and stillness that allows the transparency of selfing really to be seen, that allows clinging to fade away, that allows craving and aversion to begin to fall away. When the Buddha speaks and extols the homeless life, it's not just about a lifestyle. It's about the way that we inhabit this moment fully without the fabrication, without the constructions of a self, without, without inhabiting this life instead of inhabiting a house built upon clinging. And that this is, this is as the Buddha describes it, the state of peace, the awakened heart. To end just with something from one of the Odanas. says, seclusion is happiness for one content who knows the Dharma, who has seen. Friendship with the world is happiness for those restrained towards all being. Dispassion amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sensual craving. But the end of the conceit of I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. So we take just a moment quietly together. So thank you for your attention and we now have a walking period.